Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on the courts, the Constitution, law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University School of Law. But, Richard, I believe at this moment you're in Chicago, aren't you? Yes, I am, where I'm a senior fellow. Okay. Well, Richard, a lot's happened since we last spoke. On June 27th, uh, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. Two weeks later, President Trump announced his replacement for Justice Kennedy, namely Judge Brett Kavanaugh of the D.C. Circuit. We're now just weeks away from Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, and with all uh, likelihood, his confirmation is joining the Supreme Court. Before we get to Judge Kavanaugh, let's close the book on Justice Kennedy. Uh, He obviously spent three decades on the court making a mark, including on issues uh, of, of great importance, including regulatory takings, an issue close to your heart. So, Richard, I'm very curious to hear your take on Justice Kennedy uh, in retrospect. Well, it's a mixed review, of course, because I think he did many things that I liked in terms of particular decisions, many that I disliked. But I'm going to actually concentrate on one that I find objectionable, and it's not only shared by many and this is essentially the rejection of systems of formalism on the one hand in favor of balancing tests on the other. And it is certainly the case that everybody has to understand that no matter what basic principle you start with, some degree of balancing is necessarily of going to take place. The question, though, is how you you do it. And, and this, I think, is the way in which you want to think about it. Uh, the basic legal system has to have clear rules of the road. And balancing is the thing that comes into the system when it turns out that some serious mishap is taken the system. And so for the most part, when you're talking about highways, um, if everybody sticks to the rules of the road and knows the rights of way, nobody gets hurt. Somebody deviates, other people have to figure out what to do in response. And I think jurisdiction should be like the rules of the road. So when it comes to the Commerce Clause, I've always taken the position uh, that uh, you're before interstate commerce, you're in interstate commerce, or you're after interstate commerce. Uh, the common illustration of this is you get onto a plane in Philadelphia, getting the camp- the airport is local, taking the plane to Cal- to Illinois is essentially interstate, and taking the cab from O'Hare Airport to downtown becomes local. Under this rule, all um, local manufacture, agriculture, and mining are the stuff of state regulation. And this is a very stable position that lasted for 150 years. But when we got the modern New Deal revolution with cases like Wicked and Filburn, where feeding your own corn to your own cows becomes a form of interstate commerce because of its effect on prices and the flow of goods, everything is lost. And there's no question that when uh, our friend uh, Kennedy signed on to the important Lopez decision, he stressed that he didn't believe in formal tests, which meant that Lopez was we, it was a victory, not for the defenders of limited government and limited federal power, but for the exact opposite, because the balancing test made things very comfortable when it came to cases like which, which was explicitly reaffirmed by the Chief Justice, and Kennedy went along with it. Uh, so on traditional issues, I think you need clear rules, balance doesn't help. The same thing I think is true on the sort of the balancing test, which often comes up with respect to property rights. He was a very big balancer. I'll just mention a couple of cases very quickly. Uh, there's one case dealing with what counts as a navigable water of the United States, and Justice Scalia said, well, it has to be a river. It has to be something you could float down. Uh, Justice Kennedy wasn't sure, so he didn't say that was wrong. 
didn't say it was right either. The liberals are willing to give a much broader concept to navigable waters, and the swing vote of Justice Kennedy in that case meant that the whole issue became one of turmoil, and it was certainly for the progressive, for the conservatives on that kind of issue. When it came to retroactivity, he had the same kind of squeamish situation, and so there were four votes for basically trying to put teeth in that principle. Justice Kennedy waffled, and when you looked at the results of the Eastern Enterprise and Fell. His decision was the key one with respect to the way in which the system became one essentially, and retroactivity is no longer a clear barrier. It becomes a point of contention for balancing. When it came to property cases, he was a big balancer. Um, that was short in his last opinion in Muir. I am very suspicious about. Uh, drawing no clear distinction about trying to draw a distinction between regulatory takings and physical takings. The Penn Central case, which started all of this, dealt with air rights. These are recognizable, transferable, mortgageable interests under state law. If you treat that as a mere regulation, you get up into a balancing take. Property protective interests are very much weakened, which means political intrigue gets a great deal larger, whether you're talking with growth ordinances or anything else. I think his intellectual frame on these issues was suspect. Notwithstanding, I think it's worth talking about this, his interest in liberty on the one hand and separation of powers on the other. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Richard. For all the talk about Justice Kennedy being a swing justice, I think you're right to call him more of a balancer. Um, when people would ask me about Justice Kennedy and his approach in constitutional cases, I usually tried to boil it down into three basic principles or maybe three, three the hierarchy of Justice Kennedy's needs. Uh, the first principle was liberty. Justice Kennedy had a very distinct or distinctive view of liberty. Uh, and so much of his work was, was, especially in, say, the same-sex marriage cases and the abortion cases and so on, was aimed towards liberty as he saw it. Now, the second one was the structural constitution, federalism and the separation of powers. Justice Kennedy was a proponent of these to the extent that he saw them furthering the cause of liberty. He liked to go back over and over again to James Madison's uh, suggestion in Federalist 51 that the Constitution gave a double security to the rights of the people through the separation of powers at the federal level and then federalism <coughs> division of power between the federal government and the state government. So to the extent that federalism or separation of powers advanced the cause of liberty, Justice Kennedy was a big proponent of those. And then finally, maybe above all, all else, was Justice Kennedy's embrace of, of, of undifferential judicial assertions of power in service of liberty and in service of the structural constitution in service of liberty. Justice Kennedy was a very undifferential judge, whether he counts as, in terms of what it's increasingly called judicial engagement on the libertarian side of things, I don't know. But Justice Kennedy was a big fan of judges sorting out questions of liberty for the rest of government. But I don't want to give a short trip to the structural constitution side of things. I wrote a few years ago a piece in the middle of the Hobby Lobby litigation tracing back Justice Kennedy's writings, not just on federalism, but on the separation of powers, the non-delegation doctrine. Before he was even on the Supreme Court, when he was still on the Ninth Circuit, he wrote a very strong opinion in a case called INS v. Chadha, which is now famously a Supreme Court decision on congressional vetoes. Justice Kennedy was there before that on the Ninth Circuit writing on these things. So, say, a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking at our headquarters at Stanford and giving a presentation on Justice Kennedy, you know, people mostly remember him now for his opinions in the same-sex rights cases, beginning with Romer versus Evans in the Colorado case in the mid-90s, all the way through Lawrence v. Texas on sodomy, and then the gay marriage cases of, of Windsor and eventually Obergefell. 
Justice Kennedy was you know, famously remembered now for being the leading voice on, the, on those issues, and also his role in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, preserving, uh, restoring, or sorry, preserving and retaining the core right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. Uh, he's remembered for that. And he's also remembered for some of his more flowery rhetoric in some of those cases, his, his, his ode to, uh, to judicial authority and stare decisis. ISIS, right, that the rule of law knows no refuge in the liberty of, of doubt, or jurisprudence of doubt, I think he said. And then in Lawrence v. Texas, he talked about uh, the liberty uh, in terms of, was it the sweet mystery of life, as Justice Scalia said, everybody has the liberty to define their own concept of existence, which I still don't understand what he was talking about. But for as much as he remembered about those things, he should be also remembered for the other aspects of his jurisprudence. You know, it occurs to me, Richard, our colleague uh, at the Hoover Institution, Harvey Mansfield, famously awards students two grades, right? The grade they really deserve and then the grade that the grading curve forces him to give out, the inflated grade. Um, I, I'd be curious not to put you on the spot, but it, what, how would you grade Justice Kennedy on his own merits and how would you grade him on the curve of the justices we've had in the 20th century, right? Well, it's I, one thing. Go ahead. I think he's a pretty serious judge. I don't think he's extraordinary. I would not put him up in the – on with the likes of Holmes and Jackson and so forth, um, um, but I think respectable. But given what I think to be his jurisprudential flaws, I don't think he's out, outstanding. Um, I'm going to talk about the abortion cases in Oberfeld in a second where I rate him lower than others. So I think he's comfortably in B territory. Uh, but then again, remember, my real grades come from my real philosophical positions. And so let me talk about some of the issues that you mentioned. One, I do agree with you. Structural constitution as the outer bulwark of liberty is extremely important. Uh, one of the things he did not write about the last term was a case called Oil States Against Green Energy. It was a huge debt to the administrative agent dealing with questions that are in courts of law, um, encroachment on Article 3. I thought Justice Thomas wrote an extremely poor opinion on that question. There was Justice uh, Kennedy on his side. Uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote a strong opinion on the opposite side, joined by Justice Roberts. I would have hoped that given his interest in separation of powers, uh, that Justice Kennedy would have been on the other side. Ditto with Justices Alito uh, and so forth, but it was seven to two. And I think what happens is we now see in certain areas there's a, a suspicion of intellectual property of justice and a huge fan of deference and justice prior on all sorts of administrative law question, which I think has served us an ill. If you take the cake makers case, that absolute case religious liberty was surely at stake. These were not frivolous claims. If you're trying to figure out what's going on in this case, I actually wrote a brief with a man named Sean Gates, and what did we say? Uh, well, several things. One is, if you start looking at Lakewood, uh, Colorado, there are 20 or 30 other facilities within a quarter or a half a mile which will bake you a same-sex cake for a wedding. Why do you have to coerce somebody against will when the alternatives are so powerful? Anybody who believes in religious liberty would have to accept that position. And what Justice Kennedy did was to write the wrong kind of an opinion, saying it was the pardonable behavior of the members of the Chicago, or the Colorado, not Chicago, a civil rights commission, which essentially made their decision impermissible. But when the case is reversed, he didn't even say it was remanded with what kind of instructions. I thought it was abandonment in those liberty in those cases. On the abortion it's funny, back in 73, I wrote about this at the instant of Curlin for the Supreme Court Review, and there was actually a real disagreement 
between me and Curl, and then he controlled the title, controlled the article. His title made it appear as though it was the substance of due process case muck, which meant that, of course, we should have followed Lochner when it came to this case, and so the road divide was my position was the opposite. I thought Lochner was correctly decided. There was a liberty interest at stake in the police power justification having to do with health and safety where I think much stretched in that case. If the situation we have with the power in Roe Wade, it's a serious issue. What you're supposed to do for the unborn child and saying that all this stuff is above my pay grade doesn't answer the question. And I thought police power justifications controlled. So even though I believe in a presumption of liberty, I think it was actually overcome in a particular case. Now, 40-odd years later, I'm very wrong overrule Roe v. Wade, but it's not because I thought it was correct in the beginning and I've changed my mind. It's just that I think prescriptive constitutions have a certain degree of force. And when you establish a that powerful, we try to disrupt it even prospectively dangerous game, so I would not be one of those, nor do Justice Judge Kavanaugh would be one of those who would take it on on a list grounds at this late date. Uh, but I thought, in effect, that Kennedy was wrong on that question. So, you know, we tend to disagree a little bit on some of these things, and I think that leads you to have a slightly higher evaluation of his service than I do. Well, I'd say slightly higher. I'd say that that my, uh, my grade on the curve relative to other 20th century judges might be BB plus on his own merits. I'd I'd, I'd say around a B minus, but it's hard to say. Um, oh my! He, we, you're, so you're as tough as I am. <laughs> well, on the on the on on his approach in, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey is is it is what it is. And his approach in the same sex marriage case and what led up to it was very fascinating. You had for years he wrote these opinions on liberty and especially in terms of dignity, and you had. Uh, law professors, Lawrence Tribe, Bruce Ackerman, and others especially, really visibly, like, obviously writing in that direction, writing on a jurisprudence of dignity and trying to bring him further and further. And then everybody seemed on that side seemed surprised when he came out the other way in Masterpiece Cake Shop, where it was the dignity of the baker at issue. I, I, I wrote about this for commentary, and my editors gave it a wonderful headline. They called it Cake Boss like the TV show, which I thought was perfect because you had, in, at the end, in all of this, you had Justice Kennedy deciding all these questions of dignity. On one hand, I mean, who isn't a fan of human dignity? And I, I, I'm glad he's sensitive to these things. On the other hand, I thought Justice Thomas got the better of this argument and maybe his dissent in Obergefell. One of those cases, Justice Thomas said, the government cannot bestow dignity nor take dig dignity away and the law just cannot be the, the law can't be decided in those terms it doesn't make any sense by 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 writing about these things in terms of dignity justice kennedy actually aggrandized more power to government by implying or presuming that government itself or the court is in the power to bestow dignity on people or take it away which i think is well-intentioned but completely wrong every god dignity is one virtues that is a social matter you have to have. and so when you hear that somebody is not treating somebody with your respect and you're talking about how you evaluate people and their social interactions for your own moral job uh, you look very badly on but the difficulty take it away from behavior and interactions and treat it as a value um it becomes a non-scale but there's always interest on both of every particular case. So you could talk about the dignity of the gay couple, you could talk about the dignity of the baker, and you have no way to figure out which way it goes. So what you need to do is to have a different theory, and the theory is when do you have a right to deal, and when do you, or the right to refuse to deal. 
standard classical line, which I passionately defend, is that if you're a common carrier that is with monopoly position offering fungible services, you have a duty to deal on fair and reasonable terms with everybody who comes before you, regardless of all sorts of things like race and creed and sexual orientation. The only distinctions that you could make are those cost base. That is, for some reason, much more money to supply electricity to than it does at an offload time. You could give charge for the peak load, but you have to do it for all people at the peak load, not just your friends. Uh, but when it comes to ordinary markets, essentially everybody has the right to either choose or not to choose to deal with people because the defense of dignity lies in their ability to get businesses from someone. And when you're looking at the same-sex issues, there is website after website that specializes in these kinds of an arrangement. So while you have to take a lonely baker and force him to either renounce his faith or to go through some kind of exhaustive training or face financial ruin, seems to me to be completely besides the point. I understand that common carriers today are sub race and sex discrimination rules. I am not in favor of those as an abstract matter, but since for the most part they're non-problematic, the last thing I want to do is to kick up a fuss on when everything that you care about is done within the current regime. But when it comes to handicap type issues and when it comes to the religious question, I think the dignity question starts to become very, very onerous and that a more consistent view of property and liberty is there. And so here's the ultimate irony, Adam, which is you have a man who's passionately in belief of liberty and passionately in belief of dignity. It turns out too often the two of those things are in conflict with each other. Now, you mentioned uh, Judge Kavanaugh a little while ago, Judge Kavanaugh, Kennedy's former clerk and now perhaps his successor. Kavanaugh is perhaps most prominent for his writings on the structural constitution and on administrative law, which is no surprise given that Kavanaugh is on the D.C. Circuit. Now, these are areas actually where Justice Kavanaugh, as we said, was actually, or sorry, Justice Kennedy, was actually pretty reliable, pretty good. Uh, in those respects, he might he might uh, be an improvement over Justice Kennedy, but not a world changer. Uh, I'm curious what you see in Judge Kavanaugh so far and what you make of his nomination. Well, look, I do not spend most of my time studying Supreme Court opinions unless this, or, or circuit court opinions unless there's some issue in which I'm sort of deeply engaged. Uh, the one opinion I think will capture a lot of attention is his PHH opinion, where he took the very strong view later over by the court on bank in the uh, District of Columbia that you can't have it both ways. You cannot have a situation in which you give huge delegations to an administrative agency and then concentrate that power in the hands of one person. If you wish to delegate his position, as you have to do it to a commission because he saw the enormous abuses of power associated with Richard Cordray, who in the particular case basically by all past practices and decided unilaterally on an appeal uh, to increase by 20-fold the fine that had been imposed below, which absolutely staggers the imagination that anybody can do it. Uh, but this is an opinion working within the modern – my position is actually, again, somewhat more strong. I do not believe at all having any indicative power put in the hands of people who have executive enforcement power. I think the separate power's position may be murky – Congress and the executive, but I think between the um, executive and the judicial, it ought to be much clearer. What happens is you get these impossible situations where you first promulgate rules and then you enforce them. That was an issue in the Lucia case where, as I recall, Mrs. Kennedy voted 
the appointments power didn't cover this case. But I think the issues are much more profound than the issue as to whether or not the right person has made the appointment. I do not think it is consistent with due process to allow the people who prosecute to appoint the people who judges and then say to them, you'll get reappointed in future as you toe the line in the current cases. So I think, in effect, Justice Kennedy is, Justice, Judge Kavanaugh is correct on these issues, uh, but I would go even form further. But I do think his appointment is extremely important because along with Justice Gorsuch, I do think that there are at least two solid votes who understand the danger of excessive deference in dealing with the Chevron opinion having to do with notice and comment hearing and also with our decision having with the interpretation that a federal agency has its own regulations, which again I think is much too deferential, and the man who was responsible for that was Justice Scalia, who I think later recanted, but at the time wrote an opinion which goes down in the annals of all-time horribles under this issue. So I'm fairly firm on things. I would hope that Kavanaugh would move in that direction. I think he surely will. There's obviously a big difference between him and Merrick Garland, who's a fine judge. And so I would think that there's going to make a change. But I don't regard this as a revolutionary change. There are going to be no revolutionary changes as Justice Chief Justice Roberts sits on this particular because I think he's a continuity man in a way that some of the others may not be. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm against most revolutions in general. <laughs> I know. You're a sensible guy. Right. Um, I'm, just, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the PHH case. It's a case I'm fond of. I was, I was involved in the case at the lower court when I was still in legal practice. Um, we wrote a brief for Seaboy and Gray and I, and I and others wrote a brief on the constitutional issue uh, that Kavanaugh ended up picking up. Um, Kavanaugh, in that case, it's interesting. Just the other day, I think just this week or maybe uh, last week, the Fifth Circuit issued an opinion declaring the structure of the Federal Housing Finance Authority Ah, unconstitutional, where they really adopted in large part Judge Kavanaugh's approach in PHH. A few months before that, uh, the district court in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York, (laughs) a judge adopted in total Judge Kavanaugh's approach in PHH and declared the CFPB structure unconstitutional. And one thing I've been impressed by with Kavanaugh over the years is the impact he's had on other courts, including the Supreme Court. Time after time, you'd see him write a dissenting opinion in a, uh, a, a, an administrative or structural mm-hmm. constitutional case. And he might lose in the D.C. Circuit, but he, his reasoning would be adopted in the Supreme Court. There was the Free Enterprise Fund case the, the, involving an independent agency within another independent agency. That ended up getting taken up by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, the, the greenhouse gas cases, Kavanaugh's opinion effectively prevailed in, uh, in utility air regulatory group. You saw this over and over again. I, I, I sometimes would think of there's, a, there's the saying of prophets without honor in his own, his own hometown. In some ways, that was Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh was a Jeremiah on these issues where he would write opinions in the D.C. Circuit, either in PHH it was a panel opinion that ended up getting yeah. vacated, or it was a dissenting opinion where his impact would reach the Supreme Court or other courts even when his own yeah. colleagues weren't listening. And so his appointment to the Supreme Court would be, I think, fitting because a lot of his ideas already arrived the thing is, since he's on the D.C. Circuit, his docket was a little narrow. We don't know where yeah. he is on some of the other issues, and I'm sure that's what the confirmation hearings will focus on. I uh, agree with that. Now, let me com- comment about the Fannie and Fannie case. I yeah. represent a variety of hedge funds on this thing going back uh, uh, to 2013. Or, the judicial approach on this issue has been uniformly dreadful, which the 
comes up with a self-appointed plan. You own the stocks, but we get all the dividends. We get all the capital gains. We get all the votes, but you keep title to the shares. And that is then held. Penn Central test, again, a very bad application, not to be a taking. Uh, there was a peculiarly dreadful opinion by both Douglas Ginsburg, a Republican, and Patricia Millett, the Democrat, which essentially gave full vote to the substantive things. And when you got to the Fifth Circuit, when it came to the substantive issues, there were two sentences to the effect, we believe that the earlier analysis on this is correct, and so we're not upsetting the fundamental justice. So what happened? What you say now is the guy who is the head of the FHFA, the Federal Housing Financial Authority, can be removed by the president at will. You know what happens? All of the decisions that he makes until he's removed are valid. And so what you do is you have a situation where the things that they argue for do not even lead to the following notion, which says, look, this guy was in power for a very long period of time. Uh, he had announced that were flatly wrong. Melchot was a defendant. And he said his job was to make sure that the taxpayers did not get taken advantage of. That was not his job. The conservator of the asset, the job to make sure that the taxpayers were not taken advantage of was with the Department of Treasury decided to make its loan. Using the wrong standard, he's using it as a sole guy. What you have to do if you're serious about all of this is say, guys, you have to start over. That's what they did in Lucia. And Lucia said they have to start over with somebody else. Uh, so what you do is you get these remedies, and I think starts to point out the dangers of structuralism. Is you could get remedies that may sound good in the abstract, may actually perform in the long run, uh, but if it's a structural remedy, a structural claim with a weak remedy, uh, then in fact you don't give relief to the party who brought it. So if you're sitting there with all of this paper men rendered worthless by government decisions, the notion. Trump could then remove uh, Mel Watt is not going to help. One of the backstories of the whole Fannie and Freddie situation is it was Republicans like Hensling and Cork who in fact strongly defending the decisions that the FHFA made. So you were into a bipartisan storm of the worst order in this case. And so again, I'm going to go back to the fact that on procedural stuff, if you're going to make the changes, they have to be much more powerful than just simply saying you could remove it. But you also have to go back to the substantive side and to understand that the spread of the Penn Central regulatory taking into financial has been, I think, an inexcusable intellectual and constitutional disaster. Now, Richard, we're almost out of time, but I have just one last question for you. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on before we go. Uh, when Justice Kennedy's retirement was announced – uh, the political left erupted, hair on fire, uh, complaining once again about Judge Garland not getting a hearing. Um, and there were there were calls for the Senate Democrats not to proceed with the Kavanaugh nomination. I don't know how they'd actually accomplish that since they don't control the Senate. But then some scholars started to preemptively announce that the next Democratic president and Congress should pack the court by adding seats, maybe adding two more seats, maybe adding four more seats and immediately filling them with new Democratic-appointed judges. Uh, Richard, I'm curious, in the big scheme of things, do you think it would be better if the Supreme Court were bigger, or do you like it the way it is? I don't know what the optimal is, but I do know that this court-packing plan is better than the one that Roosevelt did. And if you do it once, then the Republicans come in and they control both things, and now it goes to 13. I've always been a fan of 
changing the Constitution by amendment so as to limit Supreme Court terms. You can pick your flavor, stop at 70 or 18 years and no more. I do think the terms are too long, but I regard that as a reprehensible uh, kind of approach under these circumstances. It will only breed further retaliation. There's one critical difference in the Garland and the Kavanaugh case. In the Garland case, what happened is McConnell said, look, we're just not going to vote on this, and we're doing it because we don't want 5-4 our way to become 5-4 your way. Uh, but stonewalling, he did not have to engage in character assassination of Merrick Garland, right. uh, who did not make that kind of treatment. It was just hardball politics. People said you stole a seat, but of course they could have in the hearing and turn the guy down. Um, it might have been politically more complicated, but I think, in effect, they did go on a real service if they knew what the outcome was to spare the dignity of a hearing. With the current situation, the Republicans control both houses. They have a president. They have a very slim party. They're going to go forward. And I'm perfectly prepared for Democrats to do as follows, to say, look, we will be against this appointment want this thing to be uh, the way it was. A uh, 5-4 we can live with with Kennedy in the middle. We can't live with 5-4 when it turns out the middleman is now Kavanaugh, who we would place roughly in the territory of Gorsuch and maybe even Thomas. So it's clearly a shift to the right. I don't mind them saying that and even voting on that. What I do not like is of trying to besmirch his character so as to make it appear as though he's unfit for grounds, even if in fact you had no political objection to it. I would implore everybody to turn down those kind of arguments, going back to everything he did 20 and 25 years ago in order to do this. Those are all hit jobs. They should not happen to any nominee of either party. Oh, I agree completely. Uh, Richard, justices shouldn't stay too long, and neither should podcasters. I think this is probably the right time for us to say goodbye. So before I go, just to uh, remind our listeners to tune into the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, which include Area 45 by Bill Whalen, Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and of course, last but certainly not least, The Libertarian with our own Richard Epstein. So, Richard, as always, it's a pleasure to talk, and I'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Me too. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.